taste and ecological sensing. Now, the reason for moving towards thinking about taste and ecological sensing is that maybe just under a decade ago, there was new evidence suggesting that taste buds and taste receptors, not taste buds, taste receptors, are to be found in many parts of the body, in tissues that are disconnected from the senses of taste as we understand them, such as sweet, sour, bitter, umami, salty, and so on. And trying to make sense of this presents a, an interesting challenge, especially in human eco ecology and especially in relation to thinking about how we relate to the world in, in sensorial ways. We eat food every day and we sense food every single day. And so it's a, a fundamental thing. Food is also something that is fundamental to human survivorship. If you didn't eat, you could not survive. And so understanding this is, is hugely important. So I'm going to go through taste and ecological sensing in the following way. To go and give a kind of overview that will give you a sense of why you should think this is important. Then I'm going to talk about food selection. Then I'm going to talk about the involvement of the mouth and the brain and how they're connected. Then I'm going to go on to discuss taste and infection, that um, these two things are interconnected, and then end up with a, an overview um, on environmental sensing uh, through taste, uh, which incorporates um, inflammation and genetics. Hugely ambitious, but I would focus mostly on a paper um, that I'm part of with colleagues in Italy. So the overview, what is taste? It's many things. So let's just cut it down to what I'm going to deal with in this lecture. Taste can be personal, cultural and aesthetic patterns of choice and preference. It can be distinctions between styles, manners, consumer goods, works of art, the relationships among all of those, and it can also be a matter of distinction in a very Bourdieuan sense. The taste that I'm going to consider today is going to be the physiology, phys, so physiological sense of taste, physiology of food selection, and of sensing the, the environment. Focusing it down to taste and eating, it involves many sensory systems. You can smell food, you can taste food, you can feel the texture of food, and sometimes food can give you pain. Um, so imagine eating a chili pepper, for example. It can also be associated with temperature. A hot potato tastes very different to a cold potato. Quite simply, there are structural changes that happen to the starch of a potato that make them different things. But also, we respond to the temperature of things. Now, I don't know how many of you have eaten fish and chips. Can you put your hands up if you've eaten fish and chips? Super. That's 16 people. That's pretty well everybody's had this cultural experience. Now, can I ask you to put your hands up now if you've eaten cold fish and chips? Okay. Can I, put, can I ask you to put your hands up if you found this disgusting or difficult? Okay. So hot fish and chips can be a, a delightful thing. I, I would share that uh, opinion. Um, but cold fish and chips are a very different thing. You know, many things have changed to that food. It's fundamentally uh, chemically the same, except the temperature is different. Your sense of the food itself 
is changed. And that is because it smells different, its texture is different because some of the fat may congeal. Um, the uh, temperature sensing is associated with, with, with smell and taste. And so the, those, the sense of taste you get from the food is modulated differently because of the lower temperature. So taste is an integrated sensorial system. What it does is it directs attention to pleasure, to displeasure, also to toxicity and digestibility. That Some foods will say, well, I wouldn't eat that. If you've tasted something that's a little bit moldy, for example, some mold on bread, um, some people, myself included, are very sensitive to the taste of, of mold. So I say, oh, I won't eat that because it seems to be contaminated. It's also related to digestibility. It di directs attention to the digestibility of food, especially in relation to sweet foods. You know, um, most people have a preference for uh, sweet fruit as opposed to uh, fruit that doesn't contain much sweetness, for example. <laughs> Um, and as I've already said, it's related to evolution and evolutionary success. Its significance in this sense is that of survival. We want to eat foods that are going to contribute to our survivors, survivorship. So to make this real, I'm going to conduct a three-minute practical now, which I hope you're happy to take part in. So this means you, taste and eating. I want you right now, if you've got access to food, to find some food right now. Okay, if you can see me in the screen, I've got my food in front of me. Product placement here, this is Skia. It's zero fat, natural Icelandic style yogurt. And I'm gonna do this now and share the experiment with you as well. So find some simple food, fruit, bread, cracker, yogurt, vegetable. Mine's a yogurt, okay? My natural size for a yogurt is a pint at a time. So no apologies for that. If you don't have any food to hand, imagine a food. So. Decide what you're going to imagine. Now take a small portion of that food, small enough to easily manipulate in your mouth and put it in your mouth like this. Eat it in your usual way. Sorry for talking with my mouth full, but note the sensations it gives you from putting it in your mouth to finally swallowing it. And then report your observations in the chat box if you're happy to. Again, you don't have to. So starting now, you have two minutes to do this. Thank you so much <clears throat> for the comments that have come in. More is coming, fantastic. I'd like you, some of you have done this. Um, Sabine has said her apple's a bit mushy and the redeeming thing is its temperature. My kitchen is freezing, so it's a chilled apple. Fantastic. Um, Gillian Chan ate a bite of salted caramel brownie. It felt mushy and soft, tasted salty, then sweet with a hint of bitterness. Felt very rich and creamy. Super duper. So there you go. That's, that's the kind of thing. You've got this temporal thing that goes with, with eating the food. So you first have got the look and the smell. Does it look good? Does it look bad? Or is it sort of look and smell non-existent to you? It's just mundane and everyday. Temperature. Is the temperature right for the food you're eating? Hot fish and chips, good. Cold fish and chips, bad. Cold apple, good. Hot apple, not so good. Does it have the right texture? Is the texture mushy? And is it appropriate? So a, a mushy apple is different to a mushy uh, salted caramel brownie. So I assume that the mushy salted caramel brownie was the right texture for that food, but for the apple it was not. Then you have the taste. Salty, then sweet, then bitterness. This is a temporal thing that's happening as this food is moving around your mouth. Then you decide, am I going to chew this or not? Well, chewing an apple is kind of a no-brainer. If you don't chew it, you're not going to get a lot, huge amount of flavor release. So you have to chew. Your brownie, though, you can just let that dissolve in your mouth. Oh, in your mouth. 
and let it all let it all do interesting stuff in your mouth as it happens. Um, then you get the change of texture and taste. Now again, Gillian Gat catches this um, rich and creamy as it changes. Then swallowing. What happens with the texture? And what's the back taste after you've consumed it? And what's the aftertaste after you've after you've consumed it? Does it linger? Does it stay? Are you left with a with a good taste? I mean, for example, I have a taste for some kinds of fats which are you know that uh, solidify very easily. And after I've finished eating a food, I feel like a fat some fat is sitting at the back of my throat, and it's not necessarily a pleasant thing. The food itself might have been pleasant, but the aftertaste isn't. So you can have some kinds of let's say cheap chocolates that are. The sugar masks everything while you're consuming it at the beginning. Then you get this aftertaste at the end, which is the cheap fat that lingers at the end of the consumption of the chocolate. Do you have a longing for another mouthful? Um, I mean, Gillian's salted caramel brownie sounds like the sort of thing I want a first mouthful and a second and a third one. So do you want another or do you not? And then there's also the thing about eating itself, which will relate to how you consume your food and its relationship to things like obesity. The very first mouthful of something is absolutely the tastiest mouthful that you will have. The subsequent mouthfuls are less tasty and therefore you'll consume faster or larger amounts to try and make up for that. The people that make McDonald's, for example, know this very well. Understanding all of these things, not a trivial business and something that people get paid a lot of money for understanding in, in the food industry. So I hope you're convinced now that taste is complicated. It involves a range of things that you can describe sensorially, but it also involves a range of receptors, mechanisms and organs. So I'm going to go on to start talking about those aspects of food, starting with the selection of food. <clears throat> so the selection of food, taste in human evolution, from an evolutionary perspective, has uh, many components. First of all, you start off with the biotic environment, the world out there. The world out there, what can you eat and what you can you not eat? I'm sitting at home and I'm looking out of my window and my neighbours across the street have got four beautiful eucalyptus trees, which are easily over the size of the of the house opposite and when i look at those eucalypt trees i'd say well that's not food for me if you are a ko koala um, then that will be fine that'll be great i'd be up there enjoying that that's a part of the biotic environment i cannot consume looking around me i can't really see any food in the environment um, other than the yogurt that's right in front of me so in the biotic environment you'd have to decide what is food and what is not food um, and this differs from population to population, groups to group. And also within a population, you may be a vegetarian and say, I reject everything that is related to meat. And I may be a vegan, I reject everything that's to do with dairy. And therefore you would reject my, my, my yogurt as well. So this is then selection of food. In an evolutionary context, if you were in an ancestral human out on the African savanna, if you ate the wrong thing, it could kill you potentially. So knowing how to select food has a cultural behavior, uh, component, a behavioral component, but also a sensorial one. This is where we come to the mouth, brain and taste. If you go to the SAS survival manual, um, I'm not sure anybody in this room would have done that you never know, um, it'll tell you something about how to find food in the wild, how to forage food. And often a guiding principle is put 
the leaf on your tongue, if you're trying to eat leaves, and see what happens. Does it evoke a bitter taste? If it's sensorially bitter, don't eat it. That's a kind of starting principle. The bitterness itself is a signal for, for toxicity because the bitterness is created by a range of different chemicals, some of which could be potentially uh, toxic. <laughs> so the mouth is, is the first, it's the gateway, if you will, to, to, uh, to, to diet and nutrition. Then what does your brain say? Uh, what does it taste like? Um, is there any sweetness? If something is sweet, um, then that signals nutrition, that signals dietary energy. It's the primary signal of dietary energy. And it's one of the reasons from an evolutionary perspective why humans like sweet foods in, to an astonishing degree. Now get this, cats do not have sweet taste receptors, so they don't taste sweetness. <clears throat> cats sit in a very different sensorial universe to, to humans. I have a pet cat, I could not treat my cat to a Mars bar, but if I had a pet rat, I could treat my rat to a, pet, to, to a Mars bar and that rat would enjoy it because they taste the world differently. And then we have the gut and the microbiota, that what you eat then influences the microbiomes in your gut and the microbiomes then signal back to the brain and you have this feedback loop of what you have eaten, what it does to your, to, to, to your brain, what it does to your gut, and all of this relates. And then you have digestion and nutrition. The nutrition that you get from food comes from uh, being able to digest it properly and well without um, it having any untoward consequences. And then finally, the brain and satiety. I'm not going to talk about that now. I'm going to talk about that in the final um, lecture on obesity and eating. Uh, because once you, how do you decide you've had enough food? This is something that happens in the brain. And it's something that is an integration of many different signals. And it has a complexity to its own. So to talk about selection of food, the most basic way in which humans select food is in relation to the relationship of sweetness and bitterness in a food. And this is a kind of fundamental axis that I'll talk about as we, as we go along. Sweet taste sensitivity increases allometric with, allometrically with primate body size. What does that mean? It means that as, uh, as a species, if you're a bigger primate, um, then you can sense sweetness in food much more easily than a smaller primate. So for example, if we were to compare humans with bush ba babies, for example, um, we can sense sweetness in a lettuce leaf, whereas a, a bush baby may not. So that's the first thing. We can uh, have access to a lot of the um, biotic environment because we can taste sweetness in very, very low quantities. That's one of the reasons why we can find salad actually very pleasant because we sense the sweetness um, in salad leaves, even though we might not say they are sweet, but we find them palatable because there's enough sweetness there to say, ah, this is doing something good in my brain. Um, we have flat line uh, threshold for bitter taste sensitivity, which means as humans, as larger primates, we can detect high levels of sweetness, but we can also detect even small amounts of bitterness. So we are able to avoid noxious substances. Well, of course, you're going to say, aha, you know, I like bitter things. And I'll come on to that very, very shortly. In fact, in, in two slides time. And the reason why we can talk about, about we can enjoy bitter foods, it's uh, enculturated. It's something that we learn.
So to summarize this, this issue about the, the mouth, brain, and taste, uh, this is a, a slide from Gordon Shepherd at Yale, who has uh, written a fantastic book called Neurogastronomy. I recommend you to read it because if you like cooking, if you like food, if you like science, and if you like anthropology, they will all come together for you. And in this slide, what he has is where the taste buds and different muscles where you have receptors in the mouth that become integrated into, into the brain via the transgeminal nerve, which I'll talk about more about in a second. And then the, then the signals get distributed, first of all, centrally within the, uh, the more primitive uh, brain, then to other parts of the brain, motor cortex, uh, to the tongue, taste, and so on. So you get an integrated sense of taste across the neocortex. So you get different neocortex cortical associations for taste, for smell, for appearance, for memory. And so you can remember the, the last plate of fish and chips you had or bag of fish and chips you had, for example, and you've already done that this morning. So if you're going to have another one at lunchtime, you can then compare the new plate of fish and chips to every single other plate of fish and chips that you had before. And you'll tell yourself, is it going to be good? Or is it going to be disappointing? But it'll be relative to your internal model. One of the amazing things about McDonald's, if I may, is that they standardize their burgers to a way that to an extent that your internal model of that burger is going to be very similar to the burger that you actually get. They're very keen on making sure that that's the standardization. So they get away with the diversity of opinion there is about consuming a particular burger because because they say it's a McDonald's burger is always the same. So it never disappoints because what one eats is very close to the internal representation of somebody somebody has. And an awful lot of research at McDonald's has gone into that. So who likes bitter foods? Just uh, first of all, put your hands up and then just tell me when you learn to like them. We've got a room full of sophisticates here. I can see that 15 people out of 20, even more, like bitter foods. Now just tell me when you learn to like them. Just say, I learnt them at my mother's apron or something like that. So when my mum told me to stop putting sugar in my coffee, probably after I started drinking coffee. Okay, that's two very good answers. 18 years old, 16 years old, late teenage years, with age, after having dark chocolate. So, okay, you know, I don't know if I'm actually influencing the this judgment by having a cup of coffee and, and, and a block of chocolate on the screen. Maybe I am. They are among the most popular things. So late teenage years. Okay, the sensorial environment environment in which you emerged in liking liking coffee and liking dark chocolate is when your taste buds were changing um, straightforwardly teenagers especially younger teenagers again have have a high threshold for sweetness and so don't sense things as sweet as adults do and so the fact that teenagers put a lot of sugar in stuff is related to their physiology that teenagers do live in a different sensorial universe to, to adults. And the learning of bitter taste is partly the physiology, the developmental physiology, and partly an enculturation, that you learn to like bitterness from uh, the things that people tell you you should be able to like, and then you learn to appreciate them and like them. That's no criticism at all. I'm like everybody else. So learning to like bitter foods involves the relationship between taste development and social learning. Moving on now to the mouth and brain, this is going to get more complicated as we go into the next half hour. So so um, uh, pretend you're in a motor car, eating your chocolate, drinking your coffee, um, and put your seatbelt on. Make sure you've got your seatbelt on because we're going to move into fourth and fifth gear. Okay. Physiological taste. What is physiological taste? 
Um, let's dissect it. It's a perception that's produced when a substance in the mouth stimulates receptor cells on taste buds in the oral cavity and the tongue. Okay, that's an operational thing. It's not like you know, you eating your brownie or eating your sugar, drinking your coffee or eating your chocolate. You don't think about these things. It's just a perception that happens once you put stuff in your mouth and suddenly all kinds of stuff happens. It happens because the receptor cells on taste buds are stimulated and the trigeminal nerve to which they're connected transmits sensory information from and to the skin, the sinuses, the mucous membranes in the face. Um, so the trigeminal nerve is doing lots of stuff. It's relating um, the fact you put something in your mouth, the fact that you can taste it, it goes back to the brain, it stimulates movement in the jaws. So it's integrating all of these things. It's integrating taste, smell, um, texture, um, hot, cold, um, and so on, uh, uh, heat, if you know, like like capsaicin heat, and also stimulates movement in the jaw. So for example, you taste something and it tastes good, it will stimulate you to actually chew on this stuff or move your, move your mouth around in an appropriate way that actually gets more out of that particular food. Everything is beautifully integrated. And then you have the trigeminal nerve is sending the messages initially to the gustatory cortex, which gives us the perception of taste. So taste is created in, in the brain. Let's go to talk about the receptors, breaking this down, taste receptor cells. So first of all, there's a tongue and we know the classical taste, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, umami as well, the protein uh, meaty kind of taste. Taste receptors are found in many parts of the tongue. Most of them um, are concentrated at the back of the tongue. So this circumvillate region at the back of the tongue. So as stuff goes back, you're a lot at the front, but many more times, taste more times taste receptors at the back of your tongue. So you have a frontal taste, and then you have a taste as you go to swallow it. And that's more intense than the taste at the beginning. So working through the temporality of eating, you put food in your mouth. First of all, you perceive it at the front of your tongue. I'm sorry, I'm trying to put my tongue out, and I shouldn't. I really shouldn't. You put uh, put the tongue out, and you you you, you perceive what's on that taste. Now the idea that these different taste receptors, these different tastes are located on different parts of uh, of the tongue is an artificial one. Now that there's knowledge about where the taste receptors are, the concentration varies and the exact physiological structure varies. So there's bigger folding at the back of the tongue, um, so which contains more taste receptors and less forming uh, folding at the front. The fungiform um, taste, uh, taste, ta uh, uh, taste receptors are, are, are at the front less folding. So the taste buds vary in concentration according to how much folding there is. As there is in the gut, you know, the gut has a lot of folding to increase its surface area. So the tongue, as you go towards the back, increases its folding to increase the, the concentration of taste buds at the back. Okay, so far so good. When we think about the nervous system then, we've got a skull here, teeth, mouth, and a whole bunch of nerves that take these integrated sensors from the oral cavity, from the nose, through the trigeminal nerve, all the way up to the motor cortex, to the gustatory cortex, sorry, uh, which then sends messages out to the sensory cortex, to the, to the olfactory cortex, and so on, visual cortex, and then what you get, auditory cortex as well, something I forgot, the fact that it's not just the taste and smell, it's also the fact something crunches in your mouth, like a good apple shouldn't be mushy, because you can, if you can, if you can crunch it, that crunch also has 
an impact on how you perceive the consumption of, of, of that apple. So putting all of that together, the perception of taste happens, um, first of all, in the gustatory cortex, and then the messages get spread around. You relate your perception of that food to everything that's happened before and relate all those different aspects to it without thinking um, via the transgeminal nerve, which transmits the, the, the sensory, uh, sensory information. Okay, what's the perfect way to eat a Pringle? I'm not, this is not a genuine question right now, but think about it. They say that you should eat it with the top down or the top up. Actually, they say the best way is the way that I put it there. That apparently is the right way to eat a Pringle because you put it in your mouth, it goes crunch, you get all the crunch, and then, and, and there, so, so, so the sound, the internal sound, um, then the tongue and the, uh, the, the distribution of the uh, flavor powder that's, that's on, on this Pringle then goes away to different parts of the brain and uh, creates what we know to be a Pringle. This, the crunch is hugely important because the crunch breaks up this thing and suddenly releases a lot of the flavor onto the tongue and then you suddenly get an explosion of, of, of possibilities. We as a species interact with the material world, in this case a Pringle, through physical and chem chemical sen sensing. Taste is a perception sen uh, system which is fundamental to diet choice and is integrated with other, other systems. What makes human taste different from non-human primates. Fairly straightforward. We have a large neocortex. Primate taste, um, the primate neocortex has a, allows a conscious flavor perception. So the circuits allow conscious flavor perception right at that moment. Human neocortex allows the integration of language, emotion, motivation, craving, and so on, which means that we don't necessarily just live in the moment with respect to food, although many of us do. I have my times with my, with, with my yogurt here, again, still here. I've been resisting eating this because I'd probably go through, I've got a third of a tub, and in all normal circumstances, I'd have gone through it by now. So it will constitute my lunch when I get there. But I would want to consume this in the moment, like a good primate, and using the, the neocortex, the hippocampus, olfactory and limbic systems, and the hypothalamus, which relates all of these things. But we add language, emotion, and all of these things. I want it. I don't want it. It's pleasant. It's unpleasant. I crave it. I detest it. I have the language to be able to describe what I've just eaten, as you just have. So this then mediates our understanding and expression of food. We have also feedback and feed-forward systems that allow us to relate what we're eating now to what we've eaten before. And we can also relate what we're eating now to the anticipation of eating a dessert afterwards, or not. Very, very complex. So we have different receptors, different tastes, and we can taste a vast array of chemical entities. Qualitatively, they evoke very few distinct tastes. So sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and savory. That's umami. Each is recognized by different cells expressing specialized receptors. This is a modest repertoire of cell variety. So it's enough for the evolution need for an effective and reliable platform to help recognize and distinguish key dietary components. That's the baseline with which we work. That this is enough to be able to sense the world and to be able to um, consume food, identify what is a food, consume foods without killing ourselves. Okay, we're going to break this down yet more to what the gustatory input is 
in respect of, of taste receptors. So here we go. So taste receptors, first of all, these are TAS receptors, T-A-S, sweet, umami, bitter, salty, acidic. So sweet, umami, and bitter are G, protein coupled receptors. These are universal cellular signaling proteins that are found throughout the body, all over the body. And they're not all to do with taste. There are many, many different kinds of them, which I'll, I'll mention shortly. Now these, and salt and acid, have functioned through ionic channels, which is a different mechanism. They operate through ionic channels in the, in the cell. Now, these TAS receptors, most fundamentally, operate by a linear code. It's like pressing a key on a piano. Each one goes boom, boom. So if you have bitter and sweet in your coffee, you're going to hit bitter piano note and a sweet piano note. And you can vary the two simply by by increasing the volume of the sweet and the bitter. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know. If you calibrate the amount of sugar you put in your coffee. Start off with no sugar and see how the taste changes when you start to add, let's say, one spoon of sugar. Then add two spoons of sugar. I mean, you know, you probably won't, won't like to, but the more sugar you put in, the less bitter this thing becomes. So you've got this modulation between sweet and bitter just in a quantitative way. And similarly, salt and sweet. If you make um, a ragu alla bolognese, which I have done and do very often, and it's I put too much salt in, which I can do, I will make it seem less salty by putting a spoonful of sugar in it. You can't taste the sugar, but it be, seems less salty because, you know, you have the volume of the two being related to each other. So that's a fairly basic kind of mechanism, very effective because you've just got these five different ways of, of looking at taste and you turn up the volume or turn down the volume. And then you have um, okay, chemesthetic receptors. So trip receptors are the other kind of uh, set of set of receptors, uh, which are ion channels and have a linear code. So these are chemesthetic receptors, things that note the the hotness of a chili, that note the taste of garlic, that note the the heatness the heatness the hotness of wasabi or mustard, for example, and they contribute also in a different way. So these are also volume things. So put too much mustard on your on your burger, then uh, these will start to overwhelm the, the saltiness of the burger as well. So again, these are linear things. And then you have olfactory receptors, uh, which have uh, which are also G protein coupled receptors, smell, which are combinatorial. Now this is more complex already. So smell is much more complex than taste. So it means this is like playing chords of on a piano. You have them, and they are in relation to each other. So it's not just one; it's two, three, four, five, six, and so on. Just in relation to a particular smell, you'll have a chord for the smell of fish and chips. You'll have a chord for the smell of a burger, the, a chord for the smell of, uh, of, of hot chocolate, for example, and so on. That's what gives the complexity to taste. Taste itself is parsimonious. Smell gives the overlying sort of sensorialness of eating particular kinds of foods. So, and then the parsimoniousness of uh, taste receptors is interesting because the things to remember among these G protein coupled receptors is that umami is T1R1 plus T1R3, sweet is T1R2 plus T1R3, 
bitterness is T2R. A very small number of these receptors can do many different kinds of jobs. And the interesting thing is that for sweetness, humans only use one kind of sweet taste receptor. It's incredibly successful. So why create different versions of something that do the same job? For bitterness, we've got over 25, maybe more, bitter taste receptors for specific bitter tasting substances. So it's parsimoniousness. Ionic channels for sodium. These are just sodium channels. Sour and combination of acids and, and uh, carbonated drinks into ion channels. Putting G-coupled receptors into context, they're part of a much larger sensing system. So we can see that they're G-coupled receptors, the TAS, TAS1R receptors for sweetness and for umami cluster at the top there. For bitterness, they cluster in uh, towards the uh, my right-hand side. And then you have a whole bunch of receptors that are associated with immunology. And then you have a whole bunch of receptors that are associated with appetite and energetics. And a whole bunch of receptors that are associated with sight. So these are fundamental sensing system of which appetite and taste are all integrated into into this into this end site are integrated into this one system so it's a parsimonious system that is using sort of a sort of stripped down way of having building receptors for a whole range of environmental factors and, and a response to environmental factors using as little as few different building blocks as possible so from an evolution perspective the question is to understand how G-coupled receptors came to be and how they evolved. That's a research program in itself. Okay, trip channels, transient receptor potential channels are expressed in ganglion neurons, axon terminals, throughout the oronasal cavity, throughout the mouth. And they, the ones that I show here are the ones that are in the mouth, so the oronasal keratinocytes at the back of the tongue, um, axon terminals, uh, the terminals between, uh, between uh, the, uh, the, re the receptors and the uh, um, uh, taste receptors and the terminals, in the taste buds themselves, and also in the trigeminal ganglion, which, is, which mediates the, uh, the transmission of mes messages to the neuron, uh, to, to the gustatory cortex. These trip channels, the ion channels and the G protein coupled receptors, are really the two axes on which taste evolves. So I'm not going to revolve. So I'm not going to talk about about smell because really that would be um, far more than I can possibly deal with in this in this lecture. So taste as ecological sensing, sweet and bitter taste are the fundamental axis for tasting food safety as well as for tasting food infection, which I'm going to go on to presently. So let's go on to talk about bitter taste perception. It's the key detection mechanism which acts to protect animals against ingestion of pro potential toxins. Bitter taste receptors, to recap, TAS2Rs are, are the molecular basis of bitter taste perception. Um, the bitter taste reception, receptors of different primate species vary. So, you know, what a chimpanzee can taste as being quite nice, tannins, for example, humans can find them very bitter and horrible. So a chimpanzee can eat huge amounts of, of leaves that contain tannins and, and find them perfectly okay because it can't sense them. But we taste the tannins very quite quite severely and so we will reject things that primate that a chimpanzee can eat and we won't eat them. Many variants of bitter taste receptors and only one for, for sweet taste. So again in relation to, to evolution and survivorship. So bitter taste sensitivity, let's go and look at the genetics. There's been work done on non-functional segments of DNA that resemble functional genes, so 
tears to our pseudogenes, non-functional sections of DNA that resemble functional genes. And what it shows is that we look at two particular TAS2R receptors, TAS2R18 and TAS2R6, we see that Neanderthals, Denisova, Homo Denisova, and Homo sapiens are all on the same uh, segment of the sort of uh, evolution of these taste receptors, whereas chimpanzees and gorillas are somewhere else. So we can say that this separation from chimpanzees happened five, six million years ago. For gorillas, between eight and nine, 19 million years ago. So we can say that some of these taste perception variants, these TAS2 receptors that the human lineage has, the hominin lineage has, diverged at least, uh, 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 diverged since five, 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 six million years ago. So it gives us a sense of how ancient some of these things are. There's much more bitter taste sensitivity variation in just a small number of people, this is in the UK, relative to sweetness. The log quinine, quinine is a kind of standard bitter taste um, uh, measure, uh, much more diversity in tasting bitterness than there is in tasting sweetness. Sweetness, as I've said, is much more straightforward. There's variation also at the uh, at the extremes of bitter taste reception. So these are two people I know, Susan Lagesen in Copenhagen from the Nordic Food Labs. She's a super taster. Her job is to taste foods. She has got a super taster has many more taste receptors at the front of their tongue compared to a non-taster. Kelly Brownell, who I also know, Duke University. Um, I've been in Michelin star restaurants with both of them. Susan Lagesen, she's lovely, but she's also a pain because she can taste absolutely every little astringent thing in a food. Uh, things I can't possibly taste. I think this is delicious. Ah, but I can taste this. Um, well, okay, Susan. Kelly Brownell can't taste anything. A Michelin star restaurant meal, meant nothing to him because he couldn't really taste half of what was there. You're probably better to be somewhere in the middle. Human bitter taste receptors. I'm going to focus on one, TAS2R38, and the reason for that is that an awful lot of work has been done on that. It's PTC tasting. It's a taste that's a classical lab tasting thing that people do for bitter tasting. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the test you can do in a lab for Mendelian polymorphism in human populations. So bitter taste genetic penetra penetration is, is very strong. Strong. You can determine whether someone's homozygote, heterozygotes, and so on for alleles of TAS2R38. So the variation in phenotype uh, PTC non-tasting in a European population is twofold, just in a population, from Serbia to 17% to 37% in Slovenia. Great variation in the ability to be able to, to, to taste uh, PTC. So different mutations. There are three common polymorphisms to this, and uh, they combine to form two common haplotypes. The common haplotypes are things to concentrate on. The PAV haplotype are the people who taste, the people who have great bitter taste sensitivity. AVI haplotypes are non-taster sensitivities. Varying combinations of these haplotypes give homozygotes and heterozygotes, and they account for 85% of the variation in tasting of this. Susanna uh, would be a PAV-PAV haplotype, and so she has the ability to taste very bitter things, whereas um, Kelly Brownell is an avi-avi haplotype, and he's not able to taste many things simply because of his genetics. People possessing two copies of PAV polymorphism rep uh, report PTC to be more bitter, bitter, 
than tests to our heterozygotes and people that contain that have two copies of AVI AVI. These haplotypes have very important meaning that people who have genetic bitter taste sensitivity also have higher sweet taste preference. So so higher bitter taste sensitivity in different populations and in children, higher preference for, 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 for sweetness. So if you're a, a PAV PAV, you have greater bitter taste sensitivity, but you also have higher sweet taste preference. It's almost as and if you're faced with bitter tasting foods, you're going to pile sweetness on top of it to reduce the amount of, of bitterness that you perceive. Let's move on to taste and infection. With taste and infection, we're going to stay with sweet and bitter taste receptors. Interesting and intriguing finding uh, by Lee and Cohen was that you find sweet and bitter taste receptors not just in the nose, oral cavity, uh, but also in the stomach, in the small intestine, in the colon, in the thymus, in the heart, um, in the pancreas, in the adipose tissue, and so on. That you have these sweet and, sweet and bitter taste receptors found across, uh, across the body. But you know what? I cannot taste my yogurt in my stomach. And I'm not sure you can taste your uh, salt caramel brownie in your stomach either. So these receptors must be doing something different. That was the thing that led a number of people to start thinking about taste and infection. So starting point, TAS2R38, again, resistance to infection. People who are PAV, PAV, homozygous, bitter taste receptors, who can taste, uh, can taste are less prone to have uh, to, to, to be infected by Pseudomonas, a uh, uh, pneumonia uh, bacterium. Avi Avi can eat more bitter vegetables because they can't taste them, have bigger dietary breadth, have, have more resistant to infection. So you have this just on the basis of taste. People can eat more bitter foods because they can't taste them, but people who can taste bitter foods are more resistant to infection. So what's going on? There are other TAS2R receptors that have similar kinds of things going on, R19, R30, R46, that show that uh, bitter tasting is associated with resistance to infection. The mechanism in the immune response, in the innate immune defense, is that the expression of TAS-238 in, in, the, in the lungs, in the respiratory epithelial cells, signals the presence of bacteria. It signals them via AHLs, which are, which are um, molecules that are used by many gram-negative bacteria to coordinate gene expression. They are uh, then, with the PAV allele, result in the production of calcium fluxes, which stimulate the cilia in the lungs to, uh, to beat harder and so and induce a nitrous oxide production to kill this bacterium, but also to evacuate them from the lungs. Now, you know, these cilia are just flapping around, not flapping around, doing their job as they do, pretending my hands are cilia here. And then suddenly this stuff comes in, signal, get rid of this stuff, push, 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 push. That stimulates pushing this up the lungs and stimulates uh, ultimately coughing and, and getting rid of the stuff all because of these TAS2R38 receptors. What's happening is that these TAS2R38 receptors are sensing two things. They're sensing glucose in, uh, in the lungs and sensing the production of bitter microbial products. The balance of these then, if there's an overwhelming balance of bitterness to sweetness in the lungs and it's being tasted in inverted commas by bitter and sweet taste receptors, then this will either stimulate killing off bacteria or not. So it's the balance of sweet and bitter. It's not just in the food you've consumed, it's also in the bacteria that are produced. It's very fundamental, much more fundamental than you know liking bitter foods and, and not liking bitter foods. Um, so sweet and bitter taste perception. It's about environmental sensing, influences feeding ecology, and regulates the upper respiratory tract 
immune uh, immune system. So the final thing, environmental sensing. Okay, this is where I'm just going to showcase a bit of the work I did with uh, Chris, Cristina Giuliani. Um, she's a biological anthropologist at uh, Bologna, University of Bologna. Uh, she's an affiliate in anthropology here at the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology. Donata Luiselli is also a biological anthropologist. Claudia Franceschi, who, uh, uh, immunogeneticist, and myself down at the bottom all work together on trying to put together an idea of pulling these different things into an integrated model. So four years work finally published this year. So just some bites from the paper. Taste receptors modulate communication between two or more ecosystems. So taste receptors are located in strategic tissues. The gut, the immune system, the mouth, the nervous system. Their different functions are ancient in evolution. These taste receptors are there to sense the environment according to what is needed in a particular tissue. Um, Chronic inflammation. Uh, Modern human niche construction is characterized by new diseases such as obesity, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and so on. And their shared characteristic is chronic inflammation. So my interest is in obesity and chronic disease. Claudio Franceschi is the guy who's interested in uh, uh, chronic inflammation. And obesity constitutes the best example of the link between uh, niche construction, chronic metabolic inflammation, and taste receptor impairment. So we can bring all these together uh, with two different systems. The first system is that of the the, the, the um, TAS receptors, and the second is the TRIP receptors. The two different two different uh, different different sets of things. Read this, take a look at this more carefully as we go along, because it gives a sense of how the different taste receptors are associated with metabolism and with inflammation and that a range of candidate receptors are associated with both of these. When we do a genetics network analysis, a TAS receptor gene network here, we can see that TAS receptors, TAS1R2, TAS1R3, TAS1R38, are associated with a number of different, different conditions, and some of them that network together. These network together with up to TAS1R3, TAS1R2, TAS1R1, and tas 238. So they cluster, among others, of course, um, that they form a very powerful set of networked responses to, uh, to, to, to disease, as well as being associated with taste. When we look at the TRIP receptors, we find something very similar, that the TRIP-V and TRIP-A receptors, the two most important ones with respect to taste, are also very important in relation to, to sensing different disease. And again, they form another axis of uh, of, uh, of response to disease. Uh, I'm going to finish off with this um, th- this particular environmental sensing thing, which is needs a bit of time to look at, and you've got this on the reading so you can find it, which is Taste as Environmental Sensing, an Integrated View of a Complex System. So we have environmental stimuli at the taste, chemosensory receptors, ecological sensing, gut, mouth, respiratory tract, immune cells. This taste influences behavior. Uh, these things together influence inflammation and response to a range of diseases and over-response in relation to things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. So taste is also integrated in the inflammatory response in re- relation to overeating. So you can see that from environmental stimuli, you can think about a model of obesity that looks at taste and the way that uh, taste functions in people who rapidly put on weight 
state. It's influenced in the, in the, in the gut, with the microbiome, in the mouth, and so on, in relation to inflammation. So we've got a possibility of an integrated way of thinking about taste receptors and how they sense the environment. So finally, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, and loss of taste. So symptoms of infection, high temperature, new persistent cough, the sense of taste declines among people that uh, develop uh, the first symptoms that loss of smell uh, increases after just a few days, loss of taste increases after, uh, after a few more days, and then after a while starts to come back. So what's going on? Very, very briefly, taste and smell with COVID-19. So you have SARS-CoV-2 at the left here with its ACE2 receptors infecting nasal epithelial cells, neuronal cells, taste receptor cells, all the cells that are involved in, in ecological sensing. You can, see, you can see that even these taste receptor cells that are perceiving the environment in the lungs, for example, and in the gut, for example, could, by being incapacitated, incapacitating the sensing of bacteria. So it's not just about the virus, it's about the likelihood of having impaired sensing other other potential pathogens. And in the activated macrophage that then leads to the cytokine storm as a consequence of that, you get damage to neuronal cells, damage to taste receptor cells, damage to olfactory receptors. These generally grow back, uh, but the extent to which they grow back as well as what they might, and whether there's any collateral damage that's associated with, with the damage of taste receptors, um, that's something on which the jury is still out and is likely to be out for a while. So with that, I thank you for your patience. I thank you for sharing food. I thank you for sharing your observations about your consumption of food. And it just remains for me to say thank you.